Section 11 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 11, Part 4. On another occasion, when Mary Beatrice and her ladies had been taking an incognito walk in the Bois de Boulogne, when they came to the ferry, her majesty had a great wish to cross the river in the ferry boat, but her ladies being afraid, they all crossed the Pont Royal, and returned through the Faubourg of Saint-Germain. There the queen had betrayed her incognito by saluting the tourier of the convent of the visitation in that quarter, who, although she was on foot, could not help recognizing her, even if her coach had not been following, her person being well known to all the religieuses of Paris. Mary Beatrice, on her return to Chalot, was very merry, and related all the adventures of her walk to the community. Her majesty walked as far as Longchamp, on one of these incognito expeditions, and visited, by way of recreation, a religious house there. The abbess offered her a collation, which she declined, but partook of some macaroons and fruit, which were handed about in baskets. Mary Beatrice attended the Vespers in their chapel, and was so much delighted with the beautiful singing, led by the abbess, whose voice was one of the finest in France, that she remained for the last evening services, which made her and her ladies so late in their return, that the gates of Saint-Marie-de-Chalot were closed for the night, and the royal devotee and her noble attendants might have had some trouble in gaining admittance, if Père Gaillard had not, by a lucky chance, passed and found them waiting outside. The poor queen being without money at this time, in consequence of the unprincipled delays on the part of de Marais in the payment of her pension, was greatly troubled to meet the trifling current expenses even of her present economical way of life. Her coach and horses caused her some uneasiness, for the person at whose muse she had been accustomed to keep them sent word that he could not engage for their safety. Everyone was starving in the suburbs of Paris, and he was afraid they would be stolen from his place. The coachman told her majesty. He thought it would be desirable to keep the coach, at any rate, in the convent court, where it would be locked up within double doors. But this also involved a difficulty, for there was no covered place to put it under, and if exposed to the weather, it would soon fall to pieces. These petty cares of everyday occurrence, about matters to which the attention of persons of royal birth is never directed, were very harassing to her, more so perhaps on the aggregate, than the great reverse of fortune which had caused them. There were times, Mary Beatrice would say, when she felt so downcast that the weight of a straw in addition to her other troubles, appeared a burden. And she dreaded everything. Our Shiloh diary records that on the 6th of August, a Protestant gentleman, whose name, from the way it is written there, it is impossible to decipher, came to take leave of the Queen before he returned to England, having obtained the leave of her son, whom he called his royal master, so to do. He was one of the Saint-Germain Protestants who had attended the prince to Lorraine, and he told the queen that he and all of his religion were perfectly satisfied with the liberality of their treatment. The chevalier had taken a Protestant chaplain, a regular minister of the Church of England, with him, for the sake of his followers of the Reformed religion, the Earl of Middleton being the only Roman Catholic in his retinue. 
On the 12th of August, Mary Beatrice dined early, that she might give Gobert the final sitting for her portrait. She told him that he was on no account to make any copies of it, which he confessed that many persons had been desirous of obtaining of him. The Princess de Condé, who always treated Mary Beatrice with scrupulous attention, came to visit her in the convent that afternoon, and told her that she had sent a gentleman to Bar purposely to announce the recent marriages of her children to Her Majesty's son, but that Lord Middleton had warned her envoy that he must not address him by the title of Majesty, as his incognito was very strict, and this had disconcerted the gentleman so much that he did not know what to say. However, the prince had soon put him at his ease by the frankness of his reception, and had made him sit down to dinner with him. It is thus, sighed the widow of James the Second, that we have to play the parts of the kings and queens of comedy, or rather, I should say, of tragedy. The princess of Condé entreated her majesty to come and see her in her newly built palace, the Petit Luxembourg, which she had fitted up with extraordinary taste and magnificence. The queen's ladies, who were, of course, eager to escape for one day of pleasure from the weary monotony of the life they had led at Chalot, prevailed on their royal mistress to accept the princess's invitation. And the following Wednesday, being the day appointed, Mary Beatrice went, for the first time since the death of her daughter, to Paris in her old state coach, with the arms and royal liveries of a queen of England. She and her ladies set out from Chalot at three o'clock, escorted by Count Molza, who appears to have performed the duties of vice-chamberlain since the death of old Robert Strickland. When Her Majesty arrived at the Petit Luxembourg, Mademoiselle de Clermont, the eldest daughter of Condé, came to receive and welcome her as she descended from her coach and conducted her into the apartment of Madame la Princesse, who was on her bed. Mary Beatrice begged her not to disturb herself by rising on her account, but the princess insisted on doing the honors of her palace to her illustrious guest. The princess's chamber being in the highest suite of apartments, she requested her majesty to avoid the fatigue of going down so many stairs by descending in her machine, a light fauteuil, which by means of a pulley and cord would lower her in the course of a few minutes from the top of the house into the garden. Mary Beatrice seated herself in this machine, and took the cordon in her hand as directed, but she afterwards acknowledged to her ladies that she felt a slight degree of trepidation when she found herself suspended so many feet from the ground. However, she performed her descent safely, and was immediately ushered into the gorgeous chapel, paved with mosaics, and the walls and roof embellished with gold, crystal, and precious stones, besides the most precious works of art, interspersed with large mirrors, that reflected and multiplied the glittering show in all directions. Mary Beatrice said that it would take a full week before she should be able to divert her attention from such a variety of attractive objects sufficiently to compose her mind to prayer. An observation characteristic of the wisdom of a devout Christian who knew how far a wandering eye might lead the soul from God. When the chapel had been duly admired, the superb suite of state apartments that looked upon the gardens of the Royal Luxembourg were exhibited. Everything was arranged with equal taste and magnificence, and though the fallen Queen of England felt, perhaps, that there was a degree of ostentation in the manner in which Madame la Princesse 
displayed her wealth and grandeur. She praised everything and appeared to take much pleasure in examining the paintings, sculpture, and articles of virtu with which she was surrounded. She and her ladies were greatly charmed with the hangings of one of the state beds, ornamented with festoons and bouquets of the most delicate flowers of cut paper, the work of nuns, which the princess herself had arranged on white satin with gold fringes. When her majesty rose to take her leave, she said, she could not allow Madame la Princesse to take the trouble of attending her to her carriage. It would be quite sufficient if Mademoiselle de Clermont accompanied her, and was about to go down with that young lady, but the Princess de Condé, seating herself in her machine, as she called the chaise volante, was at the foot of the stairs first, and stood in readiness to pay the ceremonial marks of respect due to the royal guest at her departure. From this abode of luxury, Mary Beatrice and her ladies proceeded to a very different place, the great Ursuline convent in the Faubourg de Saint-Jacques, where she saw two of her young English ladies, Miss Stafford and Miss Louisa Plowden, the youngest sister of King James's little pet, Mary Plowden. The queen, says our Shiloh diary, had pity on la petite Louison, for so they called the youngest Plowden, who, not seeing her mother in her majesty's train, began to weep. Miss Stafford was unhappy, because she had been removed from the English Benedictines, where rule was less rigid than in this French house. Mary Beatrice next visited the English Benedictine Monastery of Saint-Jacques. As she was expected, all the world had collected to get a sight of La Pauvreine d'Angleterre, so that when she alighted from her coach, Count Molza, who had the honor to give her the hand, could not get her through the throng. The abbot and his brethren stood at the gates to receive her, but such was the pressure and excitement of the crowd that two of the ecclesiastics, who were endeavoring to assist her majesty, found themselves increasing her distress by stepping on the train of her long black mantle so that she could neither advance nor recede, and was in some danger of suffocation. At last, through the assistance of the officer of the guard, a passage was forced for her and her ladies. She attended the evening service in one of the chapels, and afterwards took her tea in the great chamber of assembly, which was full of privileged spectators, and finished with visiting another nunnery in that quarter, having again to encounter fresh crowds of eager gazers in passing to her coach. Mary Beatrice returned to Chalot at eight in the evening, much fatigued. A general reconciliation had taken place at the time of the intermarriages between the Condé, Bourbon, and Conti families, among all the parties engaged in the late feuds, except the Duc de Lauzun, who positively refused to go to a grand entertainment of reunion, given by one of the dowager princesses on this occasion at Passy. Mary Beatrice being the only person in the world who had any influence over his stormy temper, endeavored to persuade him to go. He replied, with some warmth, that he would not, and mentioned several causes of offense which justified him, he thought, in keeping up the quarrel. You mean to say you will not oblige me? observed the queen. Not oblige you, madam, exclaimed Lauzun vehemently. You know very well that if you were to tell me to walk up to the mouth of the cannon when it was going to fire, I would do it. I am not likely to put you to such a test, said Her Majesty gravely. I only ask you to dine with our friends at Passy. She carried her point. 
Early in August, Mary Beatrice received a letter from her absent son, telling her that he had received the precious gift she had sent him of the ring, set with the diamond of her espousals, and the hair of the princess his sister, which, he said, he should keep as long as he lived. He added, and that troubled his anxious mother, that he had been ordered by his physicians to the waters of Plombieres for his health, but he could not undertake the journey without twenty thousand livres. I know not how I am to come by them, observed Mary Beatrice to the nuns, when she was reading her son's letter for their edification. I have written to Mr. Dickinson about it, not knowing what else to do. God will perhaps provide. The royal widow was certainly right to place her trust in Providence, and not in her luckless treasurer and his exhausted funds. It is impossible not to compassionate the case of this poor Mr. Dickinson, who was called upon by everyone for money, from the queen and her son, to their famishing followers. So far from obtaining any supply from Saint-Germain, Her Majesty received a heart-rending letter from her old almoner, Père Ranchy, describing the destitution of everyone there, especially the poor Irish, many of whom, he said, must perish for want of food, not having had a sou amongst them for the last two months. Mary Beatrice, who was much in the same case, as regarded ready money, was penetrated with grief at being unable to assist them. For myself, said she, I have some remains of credit to procure the necessaries of life, but these poor people have not. She appeared very sad, and her only comfort was that a great many of her followers were beginning to take advantage of the peace to steal back to England. She told the community of Chalot that of 20,000 persons, of whom the emigration at first consisted, not more than 6,000 able-bodied men were left, that a great many had perished in the French armies, but the maintenance of their widows and children had fallen upon her. This had been provided out of her French pension. How often, said the unfortunate queen, have I bewailed with bitter tears the life I led in England? Her ladies, knowing how irreproachable her conduct had always been from her youth upwards, told her that she could have no cause for repentance. Yes, indeed, she said. I have, considering how little good I did when I had much in my power, especially in the way of charity. I see now that many things which I fancied necessary I might well have done without, and that I should have had more to bestow on others. I give now, in my adversity and poverty, double the sum in alms annually than I did when I had the revenues of a queen consort of England. Infinitely precious, doubtless, in the sight of God, were the self-sacrifices which enabled the fallen queen to minister to the wants of the numerous claimants of her bounty at Saint-Germain. It was literally, in her case, the division of the widow's might among those whose necessities she saw were greater than her own. The object of Père Roche's pathetic representations was to induce Mary Beatrice to make a personal appeal to Louis XIV on the subject of the unpunctual payment of her pension, no persuasions could prevail on her to do this on her own account, or even that of her son. Her pride and delicacy of mind alike revolted from assuming the tone of an importunate beggar. Her ladies, her counselors, her ecclesiastics, the sisters of Chalot, all united in urging her to make the effort, telling her, 
that the elector of Bavaria had made no scruple of complaining to his majesty of the inconvenience he had suffered from the procrastination of the officers of the exchequer in dispersing his pension, and that it had been paid regularly ever since. But, said Mary Beatrice, I shall never have the courage to do it. All in Saint-Germain will die of hunger in the meantime, if your majesty does not, was the reply. Greatly agitated, she retired to her closet, threw herself on her knees, and prayed long and earnestly for spiritual succor and strength. She was going that day, August 26th, to Marley, to see Louis the Fourteenth and Madame de Maintenon, before they went to Fontainebleau for the rest of the autumn. Madame de Maintenon had written to the exiled queen from a sickbed, requesting her to come and see her at Marley, for she was suffering very much from inflammation in the face had been bled, and dreaded the approaching removal to Fontainebleau, and all the courtly fatigues that awaited her there. The young princesses, she said, alluding to the brides of Bourbon and Condé, were charmed with the anticipation of their visit, but at her time of life, people felt differently. Mary Beatrice appeared much concerned when she read this letter, for she knew the writer was turned of eighty. She said, Madame de Maintenon had been a true friend to her, and she knew not what she should do if she were to lose her, adding, that she had reckoned on her good offices in speaking to the king for her. The day was intensely hot, and she was herself far from well, and as the hour for her journey approached, she became more and more restless and agitated. However, she composed herself by attending vespers, and after these were over, set off, attended only by Lady Sophia Buckley. She arrived at Marley at five o'clock, and found Madame de Maintenon in bed, and very feeble. While they were conversing tete-a-tete, -tete, the king entered the chamber unattended. Mary Beatrice, who had not seen him for several months, was struck with the alteration in his appearance, for he was much broken. Regardless of the ceremonial restraints pertaining to her titular rank as a queen, she obeyed the kindly impulse of her benevolence by hastening to draw a fauteuil for him with her own hand, and perceiving it was not high enough, she brought another cushion to raise it, saying at the same time, Sire, I know you are incommoded by sitting so low. Louis, once the soul of gallantry, now a feeble, infirm old man, tottering on the verge of the grave, but still the most scrupulously regardful of all the courtesies due to ladies of every rank, made a thousand apologies for the trouble her majesty had given herself on his account. However, madam, said he, you were so brisk in your movements, you took me by surprise. They told me you were dying. Mary Beatrice smiled, but had not the courage to avail herself of this opportunity of telling her adopted father that her sufferings had been more of the mind than the body, then declaring the cause and appealing to his compassion. She said afterwards that she talked of subjects the most indifferent in the world, while her heart was ready to burst, not daring to give vent to her feelings. When the king went to take his evening walk, or rather, to show himself as usual on the promenade, Mary Beatrice told Madame de Maintenon that she had a great desire to speak to the king on the subject of her pension, as eight months had passed since she had received any portion of it, and that in consequence, everyone at Saint-Germain was dying of hunger, that she came partly to represent this to his majesty, but her courage had failed her, 
though her heart was pierced with anguish at the sufferings of so many people whom she knew so well. Madame de Maintenon appeared touched by this discourse, and said, She would not fail to mention it to the king, who would be much concerned. She added, That she was, however, surprised to hear it, as she had been told that her majesty had been paid the sum of fifty thousand livres the last time she came. It is true, replied the queen, but that fifty thousand was the arrear of a previous seven months' delay, and was, of course, all anticipated. The payment she now requested had been due for two months when the last installment was dispersed, and she ought to have received it then, but it was too painful to her to press for it. It is well known, continued she, sighing, that I should not ask for it now, were it not for those poor Irish. How much do you think was reserved for my use of the last fifty thousand livres? Less than a thousand crowns, to put in my privy purse for necessary expenses. Of that sum, the larger half went to the relief of urgent cases of distress. When the poor queen had thus unburdened her mind, she went to make her round of visits to the princes and princesses. When she was passing through the salon, where the great ladies had assembled to make their compliments to her, Lady Sophia Buckley told her that Madame de Beauvilliers and Madame de Remiremont were following her. Her Majesty, who had not observed them in the noble circle, immediately turned back to speak to them with every mark of respect, and gave them her hand to kiss. She would not, however, appear as if she were assuming the state of a queen of France holding a court by sitting down, but stood while she conversed with the ladies, who expressed themselves charmed with her politeness to them, one and all, and the graciousness of her deportment. When she visited the princesses, she made a point of speaking courteously to their ladies, so that she left an agreeable impression everywhere she went. The queen, says our Shiloh chronicler, did not return here till near ten o'clock, as she had said she would be here at nine, Lady Middleton and Madame Molza were waiting with us at the gate. They were very uneasy, because they feared that the queen, who was not well when she went away, had taken ill at Marley. It wanted about a quarter to ten when Her Majesty arrived. She made great apologies for being so late, and begged that the sisters who waited on her would go to bed, but they entreated to be permitted to remain. She would not herself go to bed till she had attended prayers in the tribune, before she performed her private devotions in her own apartments. Lady Sophia Buckley was well pleased with this visit. She said that all the ladies at the French court had been charmed with Her Majesty, that they had talked of her at supper and declared that no lady in France since the Queen Mother, Anne of Austria, had afforded so perfect a model of dignity and politeness. Thus we see, in the midst of all her trials and poverty, Mary Beatrice had the singular good luck of maintaining, in that fastidious and fickle court, the favorable impression she had made at her first appearance there, in 1689, when Louis the Fourteenth had said of her, See what a queen ought to be! The French ladies had told Lady Sophia Buckley that they were always charmed with the Queen of England's visits to Fontainebleau. Her ladyship would have repeated more of the agreeable things that had been said of her royal mistress to the nuns, but Mary Beatrice, who always discouraged everything like flattery, interrupted her by saying gravely, The ladies here have much kindness for me, which was not the case in England, truth to tell, but I have lived since then to become wiser by my misfortunes. 
At the evening recreation, she said to the nuns, Can you believe that I have returned, without having ventured to speak to the king on my business, but I hope what I have done will be the same as if I had, as I have spoken to Madame de Maintenon. The mind of the fallen queen misgave her that she had committed herself, and she cried, But what shall I do if she should fail me? All would be lost then. But I am wrong, continued she, correcting herself. My God, it is in thee only that I should put my trust. Thou art my stay. So pressing was the want of money that Mary Beatrice was reduced to the painful necessity of taking up a sum to relieve the direful pressure of distress at this crisis. She found a merchant willing to accommodate her with a loan for three months on the security of her French pension. It was a painful duty, she said, but if she waited till she touched what had been so long due to her, two-thirds of Saint-Germain would have perished. She was also very anxious about her son's health, and determined to supply him with the means of going to the waters of Plombières at any sacrifice. One little expense, which Mary Beatrice indulged herself in out of this loan, was to give a day of pleasure to some lowly individuals in her household, to whom so long a sojourn in a convent had probably been weary work. Our Shiloh diary records that on Tuesday, August 29th, the queen hired a coach for the fils de chambre of her ladies to go to Paris to see a young person of their own degree take the novitiate habit of a sur domestique at the Ursuline convent, and in the afternoon to see the petite Luxembourg. The girls came back in raptures for the Princess de Condé, hearing that they were in the family of the Queen of England, had, out of respect to their royal mistress, ordered all the grand apartments to be thrown open to them, and even that they should be introduced into her own private apartment, where she was playing cards. The day Mary Beatrice was at Marley, she had called on the Duke de Berry, the grandson of Louis the Fourteenth, as etiquette required, but he was not at home. On the morrow, he sent a gentleman of his household to make his compliments to Her Majesty, and to express his regret that he was absent, hunting in the plains of Saint-Denis, when she did him the honor of calling, but that he should take an early opportunity of returning her visit. The queen, who had no wish for his company, told the equerry that she thanked his royal highness for his polite attention, which she considered all the same as if he had put himself to the trouble of coming. This, her majesty told the abbess, she had said, in the hope of being excused from his visit, as he was a prince for whose character she had no esteem. Nevertheless, added she, you will see that he will come. The following day, His Royal Highness made his appearance at the customary hour for formal calls, four o'clock. He came in state, and as he was the next in succession to the throne of France, after the infant Dauphin, etiquette required that the abbess of Chalot should pay him the respect of going with some of the community to receive him at the grate. She only took five or six of the sisters, doubtless the elders of the house, and her reception was not the most courteous in the world, for she begged him not to bring any of his followers into her house. His Royal Highness appeared a little surprised, and explained that his visit was to the Queen of England, and not to her reverence. However, the Holy Mother was resolute not to admit any of his train. He was, therefore, compelled to tell the Chevalier du Roy, and three other nobles of high rank, who were with him, that they could not enter, at which they were much offended. 
the queen received him in the apartments belonging to the princess dowager of Condé, which were on the ground floor, to spare him the trouble, as she politely observed, of going upstairs. But doubtless in the hope of being rid of his company the sooner. However, he seated himself by her on the canapé, and appeared in no hurry to depart. While he was conversing with the queen, the Duchess of Perth, wondering what had become of the lords of his retinue, went to inquire, and found them very malcontent, in consequence of the slight that had been put upon them, attributing their exclusion to the pride or over-nicety of the Queen of England. Lady Perth returned, and told her royal mistress in English, of this misunderstanding. Her Majesty, who had never thought of such a thing, was much vexed, and when the Duke de Berry begged that she would permit his gentleman to enter, she said, Sir, it is not for me to give that order. The power rests with you, and I beseech you to use it. The gentlemen were then admitted, but chose to mark their displeasure by remaining with the Princess de Condé, instead of entering Her Majesty's presence. I am sure, said Mary Beatrice, it was no fault of mine. She was greatly annoyed at the circumstance, trivial as it really was, but she felt the insecurity of her position in that court, and beheld in the Duke de Berry, the probable regent of France. The Queen's principal physician, Monsieur Garvan, came on the 13th of September to try and persuade her to return to Saint-Germain, but she would not hear of it. She said she should write to her son, to prevent him from paying any attention to those who were pressing him to importune her on that subject. Nothing that anyone else can say will make me do it, added she. But if my son asks me, I cannot refuse him. The Duchess Dowager of Orléans came to see Mary Beatrice in her retreat, and brought her a very kind letter from her daughter, the Duchess of Lorraine, expressing, the great satisfaction that both herself and her lord had experienced in the society of the Chevalier de St. George, whom she styled a most accomplished prince. The delighted mother could not refrain from reading this letter to the sisters of Chalot. She expressed her gratitude to the Duke and Duchess of Lorraine, and begged Madame the Duchess of Orléans to tell them that she regarded them as friends whom God had raised up for her and her son at their utmost need when they looked in vain for any other succor. The Duchess of Orléans said, her daughter was greatly altered, which she attributed to the number of children she had had. Or rather, rejoined the queen, by the grief of losing them, for, added she with great emotion, there is nothing so afflicting as the loss of children. Her majesty, continues our recording nun, repeated this several times, and it appeared as if it were only by an effort of virtue that she refrained from speaking of the princess her daughter. That grief was too deep, too sacred to be named on every occasion. There was, withal, a delicacy of feeling in Mary Beatrice, which deterred her from wearing out sympathy by talking too much of her bereavement. When someone remarked in her presence that people often love their grandchildren better than they had done their own children, she replied, When I shall have grandchildren, I hope my affection for them will not lead me to spoil them, but I am sure I shall not love them better than I love the king, my son, or than I love my poor daughter. The affection of Mary Beatrice, for these her youngest children, was of so absorbing a nature as to render her apparently forgetful of her buried family in England, her three elder daughters, and her firstborn son, the infant Duke of Cambridge. 
if any one alluded to the loss of those children which had been among the trials of the first years of her wedded life she generally replied that she acknowledged the wisdom and mercy of her heavenly father in that dispensation as well as in all his other dealings with her for now she felt an assurance of their eternal happiness which she might not otherwise have done happy she would add are those mothers who bear for the lord end of section 11